Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike and Jude are joined by Dr. Garana Gurgich, a jointly appointed senior lecturer at the Department of Government and International Relations at the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney to discuss the recently released U.S. national security strategy and national defense strategy. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green, uh, the CEO of the U.S. Studies Center and uh, Kissinger Chair at CSIS and on leave from Georgetown enjoying Australia. I'm joined as always by Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair at CSIS and our special guest today, Garena Gurgic, who is at the U.S. Studies Center and a leading expert on NATO and on the Indo-Pacific. East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet except in Garana's mind where she really helps to uh, bridge the transatlantic, trans-Pacific divide, very active with NATO, thinking about the Indo-Pacific, very active in this part of the world, thinking about NATO, which is a perfect guest for our topic today. The new national security strategy from the uh, Biden White House and the new national defense strategy from the Pentagon. Two strategic documents that, among other things, are trying to get the right balance between the challenges from Russia and China. So we'll dive in more, but Garana, let me just do what we always do and, and ask you, how'd you get here? How does a NATO expert end up in Australia? Thank you so much for having me on, Mike and, and Jude. Great to be with you. And uh, I don't know how much time do we have, so I'm not going to indulge in the sort of psychiatrist couch. Uh, how did I get here and, and who am I? What am I doing? But well, long story short, I guess with a lot of researchers, the sort of personal becomes political and political becomes personal. So given that you can hear from my wonderful Australian accent, I'm not an Australian. I came here uh, over an, a decade ago now as a uh, a student, a PhD candidate, and basically the rest is history, but very much motivated by trying to figure out why is it that uh, some parts of Europe erupted in war following the end of the Cold War, and then what role the US specifically had in conflict resolution, and uh, also what uh, role European powers had, and then um, obviously, as you kind of could guess, uh, building from that base uh, started thinking about the role of NATO, of transatlantic alliance, of generally Europe-US relations these days. And it just so happens that the, the sort of strategic interests and, and movements in the international system uh, tend to follow me, I guess. Uh, so I ended up uh, being really, you know, uh, sort of at the right place at the right time when um, NATO has been talking these days much more about what happens in this part of the world than how it impacts the alliance, but not just NATO. I, I think it's important to also think about uh, European Union, major European powers, because all of them over the past couple of years have increasingly started looking into this part of the world. So you grew up in the Balkans when geopolitics were at their most intense in post-war Europe and, and came 10 years ago to Australia, which seemed to be a pretty peaceful and prosperous part of the world. But now, as we'll learn in future podcasts with our colleague, Peter Dean, who's working on the Defense Strategic Review here for Australia, uh, it's a much more dangerous neighborhood. So it did follow you. Yes. <laughs> or I create trouble wherever I go. I don't know about correlation and causation. No, no, I, I was far too young to, to play any role in uh, the wars in the Balkans. So 
Well, we'll we'll um, we'll dive in in into more detail on on this Europe Asia connection and grant strategy. And um, let me turn it over to Jude because I'm going to let him drive today, so he can quiz me a bit since I've done some of these national security strategies myself uh, in the past. So, Jude, over to you. Great. Thanks, Mike. I think not only the fact that you've helped write and implement these, but I think also we're going to lean on your your perspective here on how other uh, countries in the region are also interpreting, assessing, responding to the, the NSS and the NDS. Let me make it easy as a starter question and just say national security strategy. What were top level takeaways? What did both of you like in the document that you were hoping to see, especially if we're, we're thinking about the document was delayed a certain amount of time. I think that makes sense. And and in some ways, lucky for them that this didn't come out in December because it would have just totally mismatched the, the times. But given there was a delay and given they had time to process where strategic competition was with China, the, the war in Russia, what did you see in this? What was missing? Well, what did you like? Karana, why don't I start with you, please? Sure. So for me, um, I think the biggest takeaway is one where it's quite clear that there are two major goals for the U.S. um, under the Biden administration to compete and to compete successfully and manage competition with what it sees as the the key threats and state-based. We are talking about China and Russia, which in a good way uh, is a change from, say, Trump administration's national security strategy get separated in terms of the, the kind of scope, the magnitude, the, the kind of longevity of, of this threat. This is quite clear that they present two different beasts, so to speak. Um, so that's one big goal. And then the other, how do you do that? You do it through cooperation. And I think even though the entire document uh, is predicated on the assumption that U.S. needs to protect democracy at home and to do things that advance democracy uh, abroad, one thing that is quite notable here compared to, say, the interim uh, national security strategic guidance is that U.S. will not necessarily insist on the sort of democratic clubbiness, but that it sees potential to cooperate with countries that are like-minded. So broader coalitions, maybe from what we expected early on in the administration, and certainly what the president was talking about, you know, in the lead up to, to the Summit for Democracy around this talk about the agenda for democracy and so on. One thing maybe on, on that note then is how do you kind of square the circle when there are different, uh, I said there there is a state-based definition of threat, but there is also a bunch of other maybe non-state-based definitions of threat, right? things that are undermining stability and peace in the international system, where it's not quite clear really how the administration is going to go about finding uh, some sort of common ground, even with its rivals, with its competitors, when it comes to dealing with issues that it has prioritized, like dealing with climate change, like addressing other types of, of issues, whether it's arms control, whether it's, you know, dealing with global health security, and so on. So on that note, I think that it obviously as any strategic document of of this sort, um, it is quite aspirational. But now when we come to that sort of level of thinking about how does it get operationalized, we are going to come to some issues to to kind of be discussed and and, uh, we'll probably want to see more clear sort of policy articulated. Mike? Well, the first thing that struck me when I read it was how good it was, to be honest. I mean, I agree with Garana, it's aspirational and so forth, but I'm looking at it 
uh, a little bit in the context of previous Democratic presidents' first national security strategies. And I was a grad student at SITES when Tony Lake came to SITES, to Johns Hopkins, to roll out the Clinton administration's first national security strategy. I remember it well because Lake got sick and had to leave the stage, which was not a good omen for how that strategy would go. But what was significant about it was that Bill Clinton, after the Cold War, campaigned against George Herbert Walker Bush. And that national security strategy emphasized bringing home resources to the U.S. The Cold War is over. We're going to do less. We're going to be international. And the strategy was called the strategy of engagement and enlargement. We're going to have multilateralism. We're going to take advantage of this post-Cold War thaw in relations among the great powers. But when you read between the lines, it was basically a strategic manifesto based on his campaigning, which is we're going to do more for Americans. You know, the Clinton ran against Bush and said, Saddam Hussein lost his job. Did you or something like that? You know, it was very, you know, what have you done for me lately, U.S. government? And the national security strategy read like that. It was It was predicated on cutting defense and getting allies, partners, NATO, Japan, even Russia and China to do more so the U.S. could do less. It wasn't isolationist, but it was trying to set up a strategy for reducing the American resources spent on international affairs. The strategy of engagement and enlargement, that one was written by Bob Gallucci, who later became dean at Georgetown and hired me. And Bob, you know, went back to the White House and said, the strategy of engagement and enlargement is too long. Can we just call it the strategy of engorgement, which <laughs> no one didn't like, apparently. Um, then you look at Barack Obama's first national security strategy. And that also was really in a very similar way about shifting resources and priorities to classic, you know, center left Democratic Party priorities, health care and social welfare. What strikes me about this one is the earlier sort of mantra that you heard, build back better and all of that is not very evident. This is a very realist national security focused national security strategy. It's not a political manifesto about justifying more spending at home. Now, maybe that's because it came out after the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act and the big spending was already done. Maybe that's why. But I suspect a lot of it is because Joe Biden has been hit by reality. It's a very dangerous world and he knows it. And there's so there's an urgency and a realism to it that's very striking compared to Obama and Clinton's, which tells you a lot about the world and about the Democratic Party. The other thing is I wasn't surprised uh, which is good because the administration put out earlier in the year the, the Indo-Pacific strategy, which for those of us focused on the Asia chessboard was really the defining document. And, you know, this document didn't undercut it. It, it pretty much reinforced what Kurt Campbell and our former CSIS colleague Mira Rap Hooper and others put into that Indo-Pacific strategy, which was an emphasis on shaping the region, on allies. And this reinforced it. I, I think there was some nervousness in the White House. It might not after the uh, Ukraine crisis, but they, they managed to get the balance pretty well, pointing to Russia as the more urgent and immediate and China as the most consequential. And they, they managed to get that balance pretty well. But as Guana said, you know, the proof's in the pudding, you know, w- will they be able to actually resource and keep a focus on this? Mike, if I may, just a quick counterfactual question on something you just mentioned, which is the tone of seriousness and as you say, reality smacking them in the head. We can't answer this, but let's imagine the document had come out last November. How much delta do you think there would be in terms of that level of seriousness? Has the war in Ukraine just really moved the administration into a much more realistic posture about the threat environment that China alone might not have done? 
So these documents are written by national security strategists and professionals. People like Tom Wright had a big hand in this one. But ultimately, they come out of the White House and they go through the political um, filter. And the, the, the people who think about message look at it. And if it, if it had come out last year before the Ukraine invasion, I think China would have been at the center of it. Russia would have gotten much less attention, of course. And that, that space, I think, would have been filled with more messaging about domestic priorities. Okay. So I think it would have looked different. And I think it's good it came out when it did, as, as you and Grana pointed out. If they needed to have some sense of what the Russia invasion meant for the international system. And I think by the time it came out, we don't know for sure how this ends, but we have some sense now what this means. We can see, as we've discussed before, Jude, the Sino-Russian alignment. We can see how NATO and Europe and our allies in the Indo-Pacific have aligned to deal with Russia. Those are some important you know, tectonic shifts that allowed them to, to, to do this document that even three, four months ago, they, they probably couldn't have done. Maybe if I if I can just jump in here to me in terms of thinking about the, the the sort of magnitude of February 24th I think for the US it's not I can't say it, it's not a, as important but it's certainly not as important as it is in the context of European defense and security and obviously consequently transatlantic relations but I think the national security strategy makes it very clear, even again, in the sort of ordering of things when it focuses on regions. And again, in terms of really separating the nature of threat from China versus the, the one from Russia, it makes it very clear what the ultimate strategic priority and goal for the United States is. And so in that sense, I, I don't think, even though Russia actually in, in the number of times it gets mentioned is more than China, but uh, again, it is about this sort of acuteness. I think that where this has mattered must, much more in terms of, for instance, just reflecting on the Madrid summit of NATO and the strategic concept, which basically was then a kind of a document that really got turned upside down almost uh, because of now the, the new sort of uh, emphasis or renewed emphasis on defense and deterrence rather than maybe kind of thinking more about, um, you know, cooperative security or crisis management or identifying other types of threats, not that those weren't men mentioned, but really the sort of onuses on Russia and, and really the kind of factory settings that NATO went back to. So in that sense, I, I would agree with Mike that maybe where we do see the difference is now in terms of the reference to the middle class and, and to that kind of Jeffersonian <laughs> tradition of foreign policy, if you wish, um, where it would be all about home building and nation building rather than necessarily about uh, what's happening abroad because this would be then the, the kind of way you compete. But now, obviously, the, the administration can't turn away from what is going on in Europe. And obviously, much to the displeasure of all the Indopac uh, kind of uh, community analysts and, and strategists, this idea that uh, U.S. is getting distracted. But I think that there was a really conscious effort in the document to, to show that it's not, and then to try to make this kind of case, as we've heard from plenty of Biden officials, that it is able to walk and chew gum. Um, but again, the proof will be in the pudding. So you both preempted my next question, so I'll only ask it perfunctorily and we can move on if there's nothing to add. But it sounds like both of you say that the big debate right now, 
or at least a, a central concern from Indo-Pacific countries and your countries on the European countries on the one hand is trying to understand which which way the United States is going to lean with attention, bandwidth, and resource allocation. It sounds like both you say like they split the difference neatly here of signaling to Europe this is our short-term challenge, but signaling to Indo-Pacific countries, but we haven't forgot about you. It feels like talking to some folks in Japan last week, that that message was broadly understood, but there's still some latent anxieties underneath it. Mike, and, and then Gran, I'll go to you. How do you think, let's start with you, Mike, with countries in the Indo-Pacific, ROK, Japan, when they Australia, when they see this framing of the China challenge in comparison to Europe, do you think they feel like this is the right split? Well, you know, a, a close ally like Australia or Japan or Korea would, would be of two minds. On the one hand, they want as many resources as possible in the Indo-Pacific to deal with a growing, you know, menacing threat from, from China and from North Korea and from Russia, don't forget. I mean, the, the Russians are forcing the Japanese Air Force to scramble and do all sorts of things in the North Pacific. So they want U.S. resources and attention. But as the Japanese uh, Foreign Minister Hayashi and, and Australian leaders have said, they also want the U.S. to mobilize and organize an international coalition to punish Putin because they know full well if Putin gets away with it, that lowers the trends in Asia. So I think the administration has gotten pretty high points. You know, when when I was in Taipei in March and we met Tsai Ing-wen and other leaders, it was pretty clear that the Biden administration had done enormous damage to American credibility with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. But what I've heard in Taipei and what I've heard in, in Canberra and Tokyo is They've made up all that lost ground with how they've managed Russia. So, yeah, I think they got the document about right. And I think we'll talk about the national defense strategy, but I think that one also is about right because my reading of the national defense strategy is that the priorities for building capabilities in the U.S. military will be focused on the China pacing challenge. That's To me, that was very clear. It doesn't mean we're not going to sort of hemorrhage money shoring up in NATO, providing weapons to Ukraine. But in terms of where technology and investments in new capabilities go, I read the NDS as saying it's it's still China. Thank you very much. Grana, how do you think the capitals in Europe are reading that balance? So I can speak from the, the perspective of being in Sydney and, and following what's going on in terms of Australia's reaction and then maybe to get to the European response, where I think we've been over the past decade is quite interesting because if you recall when Obama announced the famous pivot or the rebalance, um, as, as it would be known, there was a lot of fear in the European capitals and a lot of skepticism about this because it just felt like Washington is leaving, right? We are no longer uh, able to count on, on the U.S. And the way that Ukraine changed some of these calculations is also in reference to now the growing entente between Russia and China, that there is this kind of singularity of theater. And now you have different views in Australia, for instance. There's been a lot of debate whether this is just some sort of talk to uh, reassure uh, allies here in the Indo-Pacific that, you know, U.S. needs to focus its attention at the moment in the Euro-Atlantic area, but this doesn't necessarily mean that it's losing sight of what is strategically most important, but that this is also good because actually the sort of 
cooperation that's being built at the moment and the solidarity that extends far beyond just the traditional Atlantic alliance and includes countries like Australia, like Japan, even Singapore, right? That this is basically also a sort of a deterrent uh, signal to China about its intentions further down the line. And I think that this is something that we didn't see before necessarily. And to that extent, I think that there is much more of buy-in and and interest in Australia, for instance, in European security. And likewise, as I said earlier in the introduction, uh, there is a sense in some of the European capitals, we can't say that it's all across the board, but just the fact that European Union is, you know, a, a community of 27 member states actually got to agree to have an Indo-Pacific strategy and that among seven of the priority areas, there is an explicit reference to security and the fact that actually European Union, as we speak, is in a process of transformation, whether this is going to eventuate in having some sort of defense union. I'm not quite sure that we are there yet, but certainly the fact that it is using tools that are more associated with military power in a way that it hasn't before seems to point that there is a lot more of uh, belief in in kind of complementarity of purpose rather than seeing it always through this zero-sum game, right? That these two theaters are separate and that they will never be able to, you know, get to a point where actually uh, doing things in one could maybe help somehow in the other. And this is, again, maybe one final thing to say. This is not to say that Europeans could you know, act in, in a way that maybe U.S. Uh, is in, in terms of helping on Europe's or NATO's eastern flank and in supporting Ukraine. But it is to say that we shouldn't underestimate the, the power of uh, economic tools of warfare or the kind of normative power that European Union possesses uh, and certainly is able to wield vis-a-vis China. This unity of theater concept that Karana just introduced is really significant. And frankly, it was handed to us by, you know, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. Wouldn't have been possible without the uh, obvious alignment of China and Russia, at least broadly, in opposition to democratic principles, despite the differences between Moscow and Beijing. And the fact that, you know, the Australian, Japanese and Korean leaders went to the NATO summit, things like this are very, very important and opportunities and allow the administration and then this national security strategy to bridge the gap between our meeting, East and West and West, but between our meeting at the NATO summit. And so that's a really important development that allows this national security strategy to achieve the balance and be credible. It also um, is bound by the, if you will, ideational framing of this document. You know, this document doesn't pull punches in terms of describing a new a world system where autocracies are facing off against democracies. And that's an, a framing approach that Democratic Party foreign policy strategists would never have done, particularly after the Bush administration. It sounds almost neocon, but that is the world we're in. And it makes sense to me that Joe Biden would want to frame this as democracy versus autocracy. These national security strategies have to be from the president's voice. I remember working on the second one for George W. Bush and uh, Will Bowden and Peter Fever, who are wonderful scholars, wrote this draft strategy that sounded like it was written by Thomas Jefferson. And somebody pointed out, that's not how George Bush speaks. <laughs> so they had to go back and make it sound like Texas. Same ideas. 
And this strategy had to speak to Joe Biden's core beliefs. And he ran because of Charlottesville. He ran because at home he was worried about democracy. And he sees that in the world more broadly. And that is important because it motivates the American people. It, it, it's legitimizing for him. I think it um, is a challenge for the administration in Asia. I, Gorana can speak to this. I think that framing after Ukraine resonates in Europe probably more than it does in Asia, particularly in Southeast Asia, but even with close democratic allies like Australia and Japan. They're not comfortable articulating the strategy in those ideological terms. The, the administration did have some lines. We respect sovereignty. Each country should choose. They tried to they tried to um, leaven it a bit. And I agree with it, by the way, as a strategic framing. But it is one area where Europe and I think Asian allies have a slightly different take. I don't know if Garana would agree. Mike, can I ask a, just a quick insert question so I can understand why New Delhi, th- this framing doesn't resonate? Why in Australia, for example, does this not hold as much water? Well, the strategic reason is because Australia and Japan, which are very closely aligned, we just did a survey at our center and American, Japanese, Australian publics and Australia and Japan are very closely aligned on all the big geopolitical questions. And they're looking at Asia and they don't want to alienate incomplete democracies like the Philippines or Thailand. They, they need them on side. So they're worried this makes their job harder diplomatically, you know, and also to be really blunt. Sometimes our allies in Europe and Asia think that Americans are kind of crude cowboys. There's a little bit of smugness to it at the same time, to be honest. But the core strategic reason it's not comfortable for them is they're trying to build connections and and partnerships and alignments that make it harder for China to to pull away countries like Thailand um, or Cambodia. And if you overemphasize democracy, it can make that challenging. Now, the way that the national security strategy tried to get around that in recognition that they did not want to alienate, you know, if you talk to some of the folks that worked on this, is there's a line in that section that says, it's not just a blocky concept of everyone who's non-democratic. It is, and and this is from the document, it's the challenge of powers that layer authoritarian governance with revisionist foreign policies. And as you hear them say, it it was the sort of the, the what about Vietnam question. Yeah. But it sounds like you're saying... That might be a a, a, a a nuance, but doesn't solve the fundamental problem of this this not landing as well in some countries as it would in others. It was pretty elegant the way they did it. And I think they came uh, a lot closer to where Australia or Japan or Korea would be than the Summit for Democracy, which was a lot more black and white. So they definitely are trying to address that. What works in this region is a strategy where we invest in the success of countries in their resilience and so forth. And that's sort of, you hear Australia and Japan talking a lot more about resilience, which is a different way of saying helping countries not get coerced. So our framing works well, but it does have, and I agree with the basic premise, by the way, I think you do too, that this is not um, the Cold War. However, the Moscow-Beijing alignment and the malicious interference is real. But, you know, this framing has, it rattles around a little bit. It's getting a little more finesse, but it rattles in this region. Gorana? Yeah, I would completely agree with Mike. There is the ASEAN way, right? You don't interfere in internal affairs. You don't talk about values necessarily. And uh, there is that recognition that uh, this region is much more about like-mindedness rather than regime type and and kind of clubbiness along those lines. But I guess in Europe, obviously, this comes uh, as something that's more natural, just 
again, by the virtue of the, the kind of beast we are dealing with, European Union is primarily a kind of a project that was based on certain values, right? And, and it was a peace project and it meant to uh, essentially democratize the continent. However, being that, that Mike mentioned the Summit for Democracy, maybe from a scholarly perspective, there is an issue here as well, because even in Europe, as we speak, you know, there are democracies and then there are democracies, right? And what sort of metric is it that you take? And I think some of the problems at least with the agenda for democracy and, and the summit for democracy was in terms of the definition of democracy, whether it's really just the procedural democracy. So to just, you know, elections matter to, to be, you know, holding elections matters for you to get an invite or is it the quality of the, that democracy? Because these days, even with the, within the European Union, there is a huge question and also within NATO uh, about some of the member states and the quality of democracies in those places with the democratic backsliding that we've seen in places like Poland, Hungary, Turkey, right? And this does matter ultimately, because if you are serious about, you know, promoting democracy and uh, a subscription to a set of principles and values, then we need to put those things also on the table. And again, in terms of the, the kind of credibility of, of uh, that particular project, then maybe it is better to talk about like-mindedness, especially when you're faced with these acute and also long-term pacing strategic threats. You know, we could spend the whole podcast on the China portion of the national security strategy, but we can't. So let me ask a, a high-level question. And, and Mike, this, this question is inspired by the final line of your piece on foreign affairs out in the current issue, which I've which has just been getting a lot of airtime here in DC, and rightfully so. But the line that I found most bracing was the final one where you say, and I can feel Abe Shinzo you know, spirit uh, around you as you write this, that, you know, beyond the immediate task of defending against China's coercion, the long game is achieving a productive relationship with Beijing. Reading that, it feels so obvious, given that China will be around for a very long time, so we have to live with it. But when you're in the DC bubble, that second part of that sentence is the part not spoken as we're in a lot of these workshops and discussions, which are really intently focused on the, the near-term challenge of China. The national security strategy, I think, takes a whack at trying to bring these two together. The language is on continuing with the competition theme, steering clear of rivalry and, and still opening up the pathway that we can keep a bounded set of competition and still find ways to collaborate, cooperate with China. That's the statement in the document. Now I wanted to ask both of you, but maybe Mike first, you and then and then Garana. Does it feel like we've found the right mix of addressing the near-term challenges China presents, but still giving out a credible space and an option set to find convergences or, or areas of discrete cooperation with China? And does Beijing read the document and, and pick up the same signal? Well, I mean, viewing the 20th Party Congress, as, as, as you, of course, did with great expertise, it doesn't give you confidence this is going to go well for the next five or 10 years, particularly when you look at the new composition of the Standing Committee of the Politburo. When you heard people talking about engagement with China, they always say, Liu He, Liu He, we can deal with Liu He, well, he's gone. And so um, it's not going to be easy. That said, as you noted in my foreign affairs piece, I flagged one of the important gaps between the U.S. and our allies in Asia which is how we think about the end game. Where does this competition go? And it, the Australian, uh, Japanese, Korean, and I think also European 
framing of the strategy is it's going to be a tough ride with China, but we want to get to a place where we have a productive relationship. You know, Abe, more than any other world leader, organized how we all compete with China. And he was thought of as a hardliner, but he also sought ultimately a productive relationship. And when he was killed, the Chinese government put out a statement saying he contributed positively to Japan-China relations. So that's that's not something you see in U.S. strategic documents over the last five years. The Trump administration, their national security strategy, Indo-Pacific strategy, the Pompeo speeches, you never saw it. You read those and were left wondering, so is the goal the collapse of the Chinese Communist Party? Where does this end? And even the Biden administration in the Indo-Pacific strategy and in, and in framing did not want to go there, was organizing the American people to compete. So it's been a gap between how our allies and how the United States talks about the end game with China. I did see, as you noted, in the, in the national security strategy, they started to address that. They say it's possible for the United States and the PRC to coexist peacefully. It's possible. <laughs> That's a small step in the direction of trying to, it, to me, it's not a strategy to get to that point, but it is at least more than nothing. And I, I suspect, I can't prove it, that a lot of that was Britain, Australia, Japan, saying to the administration as they talk this through, please tell us how this ends, because we're not signing up for a new containment, despite the fact that we are aligned with you very closely now on recognizing and responding to the China challenge. Grant, any, any thoughts on that, the, the trying to essentially balance short-term concerns about China with, where, as Mike said, where does this end? Does the security strategy give you comfort, or are um, we still have the same set of puzzles about how this all ends? I think we uh, had those questions uh, coming uh, when, when the Biden administration was just coming in. And I think we still have them to this very day. The sort of issue of compartmentalization and that is to keep the, the security competition on uh, one end and then to try to find some common ground on issues that concern, again, global governance as a whole over issues of global commons and so on, we haven't necessarily gotten to a place where uh, it's quite clear where those sort of opportunities are going to open themselves up. I think it's quite discouraging, you know, uh, given that the administration has uh, identified climate change uh, as one of the top priorities that basically there is almost no talk between US and China these days on, on these matters. We have a COP uh, in Egypt now, which probably is just going to be another talk fest because there is no agreement among major powers on this. And obviously some of these issues aren't going to be resolved only by a select few countries, right? Uh, it needs to be really a commitment from uh, the biggest emitters. And, and uh, again, one that's quite serious, which obviously these days, again, uh, in the in the wake of the war in Ukraine and the energy crisis and this, you know, the rush towards the fossil fuels uh, in this uh, messy middle period is, is something that goes against those climate goals. So uh, in that sense, I, I have that same question uh, that, that I posed in the beginning, how do you operationalize some of these things? And I think that a lot of criticisms that uh, were uh, mounted at the security strategy actually were speaking to this idea that maybe the, the administration is uh, too starry-eyed about the prospects of uh, cooperating with competitors and at the same time delivering on that uh, competition successfully that the two don't quite fit together. 
Thanks, Karana. We originally had planned to spend a, a deep dive is on the NDS as well, but I, I think in the interest of, of time, what I might like to do is turn to both of you and, and ask a, a high-level question about how the NDS and the NSS fit together. As Karana said at the top, the proof is in the implementation, and these documents should speak together and in the same direction. So, Mike, why don't I start with you? Top-level takeaways, but specifically on that question of, does it look like the NDS fits in below the NSS and is going to start really giving us more discrete directionality on where resources are going to be channeled in the defense space that meet the top-line priorities that the NSS laid out? I think the national defense strategy broadly flows from this. And as I was saying earlier, I think it does make clear that in terms of building U.S. military capabilities China is going to be the overwhelming priority. So that does not mean a lot of tanks and a lot of army formations, frankly. And while like we were saying earlier, you know, the administration still hasn't described how this ends, what a productive relationship with China could look like. It's not doing what our allies are doing in that sense. I do want to be able to compete militarily. When, when I was in the White House, the seventh fleet was bigger than the PLA Navy. It's now, depending on how you count, one-fourth as big, maybe one-fifth as big as the PLA Navy. So we need resources, and I think the NDS does point to where the priority will be. And, you know, the midterms will be a big deal because Republicans, when they take the House, increase defense spending. And the expected chair of the uh, Armed Armed Services Committee in the House, Mike uh, Rogers, is talking about a defense budget with a T, as in trillion. And so I do think they have a chance to get some resources. The other document out of the Pentagon we haven't mentioned was the nuclear one, the nuclear posture review. To be honest, I was nervous about that because you can't have a grand strategy based on allies and then put out a document saying we're going to reduce significantly our reliance on nuclear weapons for deterrence. And there were all these debates about sole purpose and no first use and these various things that would have badly undercut Japanese, Australian, Korean confidence in U.S. extended deterrence. The nuclear strategy document flirted with that idea by emphasizing a reduction in the um, emphasis on nuclear weapons, but it didn't go to the dangerous places. And that also, therefore, I think is largely uh, consistent. And I think a lot of democratic, more progressive uh, foreign policy thinkers had to bite their tongue and just just take it because we live in a geopolitically tough world and idealism is going to have to wait. Great. Uh, Karana? I would completely agree with Mike around the reassurance part of the uh, puzzle here because the whole no first use uh, issue was really uh, one that was uh, watched very carefully around this region, but also in Europe. And I think it's quite clear in terms of those aspirations and, and in terms of signaling what the NDS is about. I guess where a lot of the uh, again, criticisms could could be pointed to uh, is around the kind of specifics around budgets, around force uh, structure and, and similar. But to me, where uh, it's very clear that the two documents talk to one another is, again, the, the maintenance of the idea that the threats that are state-based are quite different. China is systemic and pacing. Russia is acute. There are references to other, you know, 
way back when these were rogue states these days, you know, just persistent threats that might be coming from places like North Korea or even other places, Iran and similar. But one thing, again, that, that is quite a, a continuity or, or the, the kind of uh, resonating factor between the two is this idea of integrated deterrence. And we, I, I know we don't have time, but it is an interesting concept because obviously the NSS makes it clear that uh, it wants to do things in uh, partnerships in alliances and the whole idea of integrated deterrence is one which is very much that allies first but then there is the question of what it is really in terms of how you deploy it uh, do you just mean that you are just using all of the government's resources towards something how do you do that what's the appropriate mix again there is a lot of ambiguity there in terms of whether you are potentially watering down deterrence in a traditional sense by saying now every part of the kind of instrument you might be using in foreign policy is somehow a deterrent so in that sense maybe more uh, from the administration, from a kind of professorial head perspective here, it would be a, a good thing to know more. And obviously, this is not the first reference to integrated deterrence. We've heard about it over the past two years, but uh, there are still a lot of questions that, that swirl around this one. Great. Well, th- thanks to you both. Um, I'm glad we at least touched on the, the NDS, but well, obviously, it's something we can can return to, and I'm sure we will be referencing and returning to in, in future discussions as we think about these big strategic shifts. So, um, Goran, thank you so much. This was fantastic. Mike, thanks for, for playing guest this week. And we'll hear uh, see here listeners in, in a future podcast. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jude and Mike. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at CSIS.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.